Uh, Well, this week we kick off our Advent series called Christmas in the City. And each week, what you're going to do is you're going to hear from a different pastor in our city as we go through this Advent uh, season. We're going to do a teaching swap, and here's why. Um, We have heard, and I can't even remember who said this, uh, but I have found it to be true, that if you get 10% of a population uh, focused on the same thing, that 10% actually creates change in the other 90%. Now, Asheville as a city is a city of 100,000 people. And if you do the simple math, that means 10,000 people, if they're all focused on the same thing, that creates change in the other 90%. Well, for a church, we don't have any aspirations of being a 10,000-person church to create change in the other 90,000. But we thought, what if, instead of having a church of 10,000, what if we had 20 churches of 500 that were family churches, that were networked together, each speaking the gospel, using their own words to their own culture of a church, to their own congregation, What if we were networked together, committed to helping each other be be healthy pastors and be healthy congregations, to be partners with each other's in ministry? What would happen then if, if those 20 churches gathered together to deal with hopelessness, right, that can only find its relief in the gospel? What if those 20 churches gathered together uh, to deal with poverty dealt rightly because of the gospel? What if, what if those 20 churches gathered together in unity, right, because of the gospel? What if, what if, what if those 20 churches uh, worked to dismantle equity with this gospel-based, the, 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 to dismantle inequity with this gospel-fueled sense of, of justice? What would happen then? Is that, is that you would begin to see change in the city based on the gospel. You see, as a church, we have no desire uh, to build a, a, a castle called Fellowship Asheville. Our desire is, is we're interested in building God's kingdom here in Asheville. And Christmas in the city is our attempt to highlight that. It's our attempt to, to show all of our congregations, yes, we are a family of churches, not just one church interested, interested in, in, in building castles. We really are together interested in building the kingdom. And Christmas in the city is kind of a, a, a unique way to show how God is working in building his kingdom through this network of churches. I'm thankful to have these pastors, honestly, not only as, as co-laborers in Christ, but I'm thankful to have them as friends. Uh, because we have been there for each other when we needed it. And it is good. And so, so what this means is that for the next three Sundays, you're going to meet Brian Robbins at Missio Day. He's going to come and speak here while I'm speaking at his church. You're going to meet Lance Michaels, uh, who is the pastor at the Grove, while I'm teaching at his church. You're going to meet James Nysong, who is the, the, the lead pastor at Reach Life, while I'm teaching at his church. And what I hope uh, that happens is you get to see how God is working in Asheville through all these different churches. Well, today, as we talk about how God is working, I want to introduce you to someone uh, that I met a really long time ago, and her name is Esperanza. I may just have to hold it up. I don't know that I have a big enough table for all this. Uh, No, I'll have to hold it up. All right, this is Esperanza. Right, I I met Esperanza um, on a mission trip that I took to Nicaragua. Is the light glaring? Can y'all see? 
Um, um, now, here's what's interesting about Esperanza. If you notice, uh, she has a smile, a really big smile. And every time that I saw Esperanza in Nicaragua, she had this smile. She had this, this joy that was infectious. Now, Esperanza is a believer in Jesus. She's a follower of Jesus. And, and as you talk to her, what you hear from her is that she says that any hope that she has is because of Jesus. And any joy that she has is because of Jesus. And so every time that we would walk by her home, no matter what she was doing, she would stop and she would talk with us. And that joy that I saw in her was completely infectious. She would, just by smiling this smile, and if you look close, you'll notice there's not a tooth in her smile, right? And when she smiled, the entire countenance of the team changed as she talked to us. That kind of joy is infectious. And every time we went by her home, it was there. Now, let me tell you about her home, just to give some context to what you can't see in this picture. Her home is a junkyard. Like a literal junkyard is where her home is. The walls of her home are cinder block, kind of. There's some cinder block and there's wood. But what's on the outside of her home, what kind of holds her home together is, is okay, remember uh, those kiddie pools? Uh, they're, they're about, I'm going to have to set Esperanza down for a minute. Keep, keep that smile in your, in your mind. Remember those, have you ever seen those kiddie pools? They're about this deep. And they're real flimsy until you fill them up with water, and the water is kind of what holds the, 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 the walls. Well, the outside of her house is made of all of the outside of those pools. That's basically uh, the paneling of her house because it's water resistant. She's taken the rubberized bottom, the plastic bottom of those pools, and that's what's the roof of her house. And that house sits on a dirt floor that she sweeps every day. That's that's the home that she lives in. She exists. She existed on whatever the church brought her, which was basically rice, beans, and cooking oil. And then her grandchildren would come by every so often and give her whatever spare money they had, and that's all she had to live on. Now, imagine living in that and having a hope and a joy that was so contagious it could turn an entire team of people just by seeing your smile and hearing your story. Now that's what we're going to talk about today. Esperanza is this poster child for joy. And so I do, I want you to keep her smile in your mind today as we talk. Because today's text captures a joy. A joy uh, that, that, that I, I want to I give you a little warning here about the joy that we're going to talk about today. Because the joy that we're going to talk about today isn't actually available to every single one of you and every single one of you that are listening. And I wish, honestly, that I could tell you that it is. But from my experience, that kind of joy hasn't been in my life all the time. And so the question that I want us to ponder as we go through our text today is this. Is, is joy available to me? Right? Like, like, how can I have that kind of joy? How can I have the kind of joy that Esperanza has? 
Because it's a good question that I think we need to ask. And, and, and like I said, for some of you, the answer is going to be yes, this joy is available. But for some of you, the answer is going to be no, it's not available. But the good news is, I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to show you how this joy can be available to you. Well, our text today is going to be Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And, and, and what you're going to see is in the book of Luke, you're going to see the, the, the text in your Bible formatted the way it normally is. But the scriptures that we're going to cover today are formatted differently because this is a song that Luke records. It's a song that, that Mary sings. It's a song that as Luke wrote this, he put Mary's words to this song. And what you're going to see in this song is the joy just like Esperanza has. And so let me give you a little bit of background to this song, kind of what leads into it. Because the book of Luke opens with a visitation from an angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel visits uh, this guy named Zechariah. Right? And he tells Zechariah that his wife, whose name is Elizabeth, is going to have a child. Is going to have a son. And then the angel tells him who this son is going to be. And he says, this son that you're going to have is going to be the one that prepares the way for the coming Messiah. Now, we know him as John the Baptist. That's who he grows up to be. But here's what's, here's what's so cool about, about Gabriel saying this to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. And saying that to them, what they realize is that if their son is the one that's preparing the way for the Savior to come, that means they know the Savior is coming next. Now, this was big news to them because the nation of Israel had waited for hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years. If you go back to Genesis, where the, the whisper of the Savior started, Genesis 3.15, they had been waiting for a long time for this Savior to come. And now, an angel, a messenger from God says, guess what? He's coming. Well, then Luke goes, fast forward six months, where that same angel, Gabriel, this time talks to a woman. And her name is Mary. And he tells Mary that she's going to be the one to give birth to the Savior. And that the guy that she's betrothed to, similar to our engagement but very different, that he's not going to be the father, but God's going to be the father. Well, as soon as Mary hears this, as soon as Mary realizes that the Messiah is going to be born and that his name will be Jesus, what she does next is she immediately goes to Elizabeth's house because the angel told her that Elizabeth was also pregnant and that, and that their son was part of God's plan as well. And when Mary enters Elizabeth's house, something amazing happens because when Jesus in the womb of Mary and John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth, when they enter the same space, John the Baptist jumps and kicks, similar to joy. And Elizabeth realizes what's happening. And Elizabeth, this woman, which the book of Luke is so good about showing how important women are to the call and the ministry of God, because the very first proclamation that we have in the New Testament of someone acknowledging that Jesus is Savior is Elizabeth. Because listen to what Elizabeth says. Elizabeth says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And the first person to proclaim Jesus as Savior is Elizabeth. Now, 
what we're reading next, Mary's song, it's her response to what Elizabeth says. And in her response, we're going to see joy. And we're going to see, is joy available to you? And if not, what it means to have this kind of joy. Well, let's look at verse 46. Verse 46 says this, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies. This word magnifies means exactly probably what's coming to your mind right now. It means exactly what you think it means. Imagine picking up a magnifying glass and looking through it. Right? And, and, and when you look through a magnifying glass, you, you, you see stuff as bigger so that you can see it better. Right? You look through a magnifying glass so you can see things that you can't see with just your eyes. And this is what Mary is doing. She is bringing God into focus. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, what she's doing is she is making him bigger so that she can see him better, so that she can focus on him. And, and, and listen to this. This God, Mary's God that she is making bigger, she knows a whole lot about him. Because keep in mind, most people believe she was about 16 at this time. She was pregnant, and she wasn't married. So, so in their culture, this was a bit scandalous. Right? Not completely out of the norm, but a bit scandalous. And in this one song, she alludes to all kinds of places in the Old Testament. She, she either quotes or alludes to Genesis, to Deuteronomy, to 1st and 2nd Samuel, to Psalms, to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, to Micah, to Habakkuk, and to Zephaniah. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but is anybody in here not even read one of the books that she quotes from, right? Like, this is who Mary is. Mary knows her Bible, and she knows her God. And that God, she is making bigger so she can see him better. She is focusing on him. And all she's doing in doing that is she's doing that so that she can know her God better. Well, look at what this produces in her, this, this magnifying of the Lord. Look at verse 47. It says, and my spirit rejoices in, uh, in God, my Savior. And so her magnifying on God, her, her focusing in on him, her making him bigger so that she can see him better, what it produces in her is joy. This joy like Esperanza has. Now, this word joy is an interesting word because in, in the Bible there are different words that we translate as joy. This one means this. It means to, to spring up. It means to leap. It means to be so excited that you can't sit still. Now listen, I've been in church long enough, right? And I've been around Christians long enough and I'm one of them. So I know this. Like, like we love the definition of joy as joy being happiness no matter the, the circumstances, right? That, that, joy, uh, that, 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 that joy is this calm in the chaos. It's the peace in the storm. And y'all, that is a good way to think about joy. But I want us to hear, so is this. This is a good way to think about joy. To think about our joy being uncontrollable, being uncontainable, indescribable happiness that makes us just want to leap up out of our seat. That is a biblical joy. That's the joy that Esperanza had. Any time we came by, she literally hopped up out of her seat to come greet us. That kind of joy is the joy that we're talking about today. 
And this is the joy that, that I think I need more of. And it's the joy that I wonder if you need more of. This undescribable, uncontainable, get up out of your seat kind of joy. Now here's the deal though. How many of us struggle to focus on God like Mary did? How many of us struggle to, to, to make God bigger so that we can see him better and to focus in on him? Listen, I was in, in, in seminary, right? I'm going to school to get my degree in Bible, right? And they had that, and I was doing that. And in one of my classes, they gave this assignment, pray for five minutes. That was the assignment. Go home, and every day, pray for five minutes, and then see if you can work up to 30. My first thought was, not a problem. I pray all the time. I'm in seminary, right? This is what we do. I sat down to pray, and I went through everything I knew to pray about, and I still had three minutes left, right? And immediately, I noticed my mind wandering all over the place. Y'all, when I say it's hard to focus on God, like, I get it. It is hard to focus on God. But hear me, it's possible. Now, kids and families and those of you here in the back and, and, and those of you who are watching, what I'm talking about isn't just an adult thing, right? And I want us all to know this. This prayer that I'm talking about, this focusing on God, it's possible for you too. It's not just an adult problem. It's not just an adult joy. It can be available to you. Now, now watch this. Because here's what happens when Mary focuses on God. Here's what happens when Mary makes God bigger so that she can see him better. Because what happens next is the answer to our question, is joy available to me? Look at verse 48. It says this. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, in this verse right here, we get to see a little bit about who Mary is, right? And why she has the joy that she has. Why, when she walks into Elizabeth's house, is she so joyful that it's uncontainable? Is it, does she leap up? Why is that there? Well, it's the same reason Esperanza has that kind of joy. And I would say that for us, it's the only way for us to have that kind of joy too. Because Mary says this. She says that God has looked on the humble estate of her servant. Now, here's what this means. And this is going to get a little word, word smithy, right? But, but bear with me here for just a minute. Because she said God looked at her before she focused on him. Right, Because the word that Mary uses, God looked at me, is past tense. So here's what Mary is saying. When she's saying God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's saying when she focuses on God and makes him bigger so that she can see him better. What she's realized is that God has always been looking directly at her. That God's full attention is on her. Now y'all, this is kind of a big deal, right? Because she can see that God has always been focused on her long before she was focused on him. 
right? Because it would be, here's kind of what we think sometimes. We think to get God's attention, we have to do something, right? We have to be good or we have to not be bad to get his attention. What Mary is showing us is that no, when we focus on God, we see that his attention is already on us and has been before we ever started focusing on him. And so here we see what this produces. You see, when we focus on God and see that his focus is on us, it actually produces humility. Because that's what Mary said. When I realized his focus was on me, it created in me this humble estate. Tim Keller says this. He says, humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. Right? And, and that's important because we think that humility is, oh gosh, I'm a nobody. Nobody would want to hear from me, right? We think that humility is, oh no, I'm not significant. I'm not important. I'm not valued. I'm not worthy. The problem is, who's the subject of all those sentences? I. See, the problem with that is that I'm still the focus. What Mary is showing us is, no, 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 there's something much better to focus on. And Sam Keller, the rest of his quote is, humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. So it's not thinking less of ourselves, that's not humility, that's just a bizarre sense of pride. It's actually thinking of ourselves less, which means we're thinking of someone else more. And Mary shows us who that is. You see, Mary focused on God, and then she let God focus on her. And so here's the point. She didn't focus on herself, right? She focused on the God that she worshiped. And when this happened, it created this humility in her that led to this joy that's uncontainable and indescribable. Now for us to receive this kind of joy, we need that kind of humility, right? And don't you wish I could just look at you and say, okay, go be humble, right? And then you would go do it. But you know what? Spoiler alert, it doesn't work that way. Right? You can't just go be humble. Humility isn't something that we can be. Humility, this thinking of yourself less, humility is actually a reaction from being the focus of someone greater than you. That's what produces humility. When I was getting my degree in seminary, uh, in counseling, one of the things that they said was uh, we were studying narcissism, right? And narcissism is this, it's this, this state of, 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 of mental thinking that you are God's gift to the world, right? That's what narcissism is in a nutshell. And the cure for narcissism is to be a part of something greater than yourself or to follow someone greater than yourself, right? The cure... For the ultimate pride is to humble yourself before someone greater. Now insecurity happens when that someone greater causes us to look at ourselves. Right? Anybody ever see a celebrity up close? Anybody ever meet a celebrity? What happens? Immediately you're like, oh gosh, what do I say? How do I say it? You know, do I do do what you know? You start fumbling over everything about who you are, right? Because that celebrity is causing you to think about yourself. 
If you're ever around someone who is wealthy or someone who is strikingly beautiful, what do you notice? You notice your shoes are stuffed, right? You notice, you notice that, that your dress was really cool five years ago, but not today, right? You notice stuff about yourself, not about, not about them or, or, or kids. Have you ever been paired in an assignment with the smart kid in class? Right? Immediately, all you notice is what you don't know, right? See, that's what insecurity causes. Insecurity is, is when you're in the presence of someone greater who makes you think about yourself. But, but Mary is showing us that, that when you focus on God and you let him focus on you, it produces this humility where he is bigger and everything else is small. Now, Mary is going to describe the God that she's focusing on. And so kids, I know that, that Carol prompted you to say, who is God? What is God like? This is the part in these verses where we're going to talk about what God is like. And so, so, so listen up. Verse 49 says this. For he who is mighty has done great things. Right? And so, so this word mighty means that, that in God all things are possible. Right? There's, there's, there's no place that his hands can't reach. There's, there, he, he is, he is, he is, um, everything is possible for him. And this God who sees you has done great things. But look at what Mary adds at the end of this. Right? She says, for he who is mighty has done great things. What are the next two words? For me. That he who is mighty has done great things for me. Now, here's the difference between humility and insecurity, right? In Mary, you don't see any self-condemnation here, right? She's not saying, he has done these things for me, and oh, I'm not worthy, I, I don't deserve them. She is kind of boldly and steadfastly saying, listen, my God is a mighty God to me, for me. This great God has done these great things for me. You see, Mary's God is this deeply personal God. And look at what else, look at what else in verse 49. And holy is his name. And so he is this big God, this mighty God who is, who is holy, which means he is pure, he is clean. There is no evil in him. There is no sinister motives. There is no maliciousness. There is no deceit that he is good and he is just and he is merciful and and he is love. That's who this God is. And he is holy. And yet, remember she said, for me, he is personal. He's not separated from Mary. Right? But he is very deeply connected to Mary. So how does a God who is deeply personal with us stay holy? How does a God who is that intimately connected to the messiness in our lives, stay clean. Well, we know why. It's by faith. Right? Because we know, we know this child in her womb as Jesus. And we know how this, how this plays out, that, that Jesus is the bridge between a God who is holy and pure and clean and us to have a personal relationship with him. Because we know that this child will one day grow up 
And he will stand before crowds and he will stand before powerful rulers and he will say that he is God and he is the only way to have a relationship with God. And we know that some will follow him, but many won't. And we know that through his death, which by the way is, will be a crucifixion, it'll be the death given to criminals, even though he did nothing wrong. We know that he will die the death of a sinner, although he lived like a saint. We know, too, that he will be resurrected three days later. Just to prove that everything he did and everything he said was true. Because when somebody raises from the dead, you pay attention to them, right? And he will be resurrected. And then this thing called the church will take off and it will explode of people who become known as Jesus' followers. And this child that's in Mary's womb, that he is the reason that a holy God isn't separated and distant from the people and the creation that he loves, but that he is intimately connected into our lives. That this child in her womb will be the reason that you and I can have this good and right and personal relationship with the God who loves us and the God who made us. And so maybe for you, Christmas has become about traditions, right? And man, there are some great traditions around Christmas, and I love them. Right? I love the traditions in our family. We have, we have a Christmas tree that is full of ornaments that we collect every year that kind of describe what that year was. I'm excited to see what this one's going to be. Right? But it's so fun to pull those ornaments out as part of the tradition and talk about all the stuff that, that's happened in our lives together. Traditions are great and fun. But your relationship with God, the joy that we're talking about today, can't be found in tradition. Because tradition doesn't turn sinners into saints. Only Jesus can do that. And so for you, if you haven't said yes to this offer of salvation, then let today be the day that you say yes to Jesus and you become part of this team of Jesus followers. Because look at this, her God isn't just personal. He is also powerful in the most amazing way. Look at verse 50, it says this, And his mercy... Is for those who fear him from generation to generation, right? Which means that, that this God that she's worshiping, this God that she has made bigger and magnified so that she can see him better and focus on him, that this God uh, extends mercy and kindness for generations, that his mercy extends the breadth of time. And you know what this means? It means that our God is a patient God, Right? And this is important because here's what this means. When I was doing my little experiment of can I pray for five minutes, you know what it means? It means that our God is a patient God. It means that his love for me is just the same when I couldn't pray five minutes as when I could or when I don't pray at all. His love is the same because he is patient. Look at verse 51. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. So what this means is, oh, well, look at this too. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And so not only is this God strong, and he's not strong in thunder, or he's not strong in the tornadoes of wrath, what he does is his strength is seen in changing people. 
right? He takes the proud and powerful and brings them low. And he takes the, 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 the low and the hungry and he lifts them up and he fills their stomach. You see, his strength is seen in this. His strength is seen in how he can move those who seem immovable. You see, a Greek god can stir up a storm, right? If you've studied mythology, you can see that. If mythology isn't, isn't your thing and superheroes are, that superheroes can make a storm rage, right? But here's what our God does. He can do all of that, but only God can change hearts. You see, no Greek God, no Roman God, no no superhero can change somebody's heart. Only God can, and that is true power. And look what else our God can do. In verse 54, it says this, And he has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so what this means is that she's alluding to the fact that in Genesis there was this promise. And that promise has been echoed from, from through all the scriptures that this Messiah is coming. And so our God has kept his promises. Every single promise that he made to his people, he has kept. Every single promise that he makes to you and to me, he keeps. Because this baby in her womb is the ultimate promise kept. He is the one that the entire scriptures point to. And so this God that Mary magnifies, this God that she has made bigger so she can see him better, fulfills promises that were spoken centuries ago. He can change hearts of people. He's that powerful. And he can do it in a heartbeat. Right? That this God can extend mercy from generation to generation to generation to generation. That this God is holy, yet, yet he's intimately involved in the messiness of our lives. And see, this God of hers is great and does great things for her. And see, her eyes are on God. And what she sees is that that God, her God, our God, loves her. And when she sees that, her response is this humility, because when he's that big, everything else is small. And because of that humility, she has this joy in any and every circumstance, and it goes beyond anything in her life. And y'all, I'm telling you, that joy is what Esperanza has, because she magnified the same God. Right, She discovered that God's focus was on her in this junkyard in Nicaragua. That when other people would say, surely God has forgotten me because look at where I am. Esperanza said, no, he is intimately involved in my life. He loves me. Look at where I am. I get to be a light in a junkyard, is what she told him. You see, that gave... Esperanza, humility, and what I experience from her is joy, uncontainable joy. And so, so here we see the question, is this joy available to you? Well, here we see that joy is given to the humble. Joy is given to the humble. And the humble are those who focus on God, make him bigger so that they can see him better, and they realize that his focus is on them. And so is this kind of joy available to you? Well, true humility starts with accepting the work of Jesus. 
right? True humility starts with realizing you can't do this life on your own, and you need that God intimately connected to you and intimately in your life. And today, you can take that first step and say yes to Jesus. And for those of us who have said yes to him, today, perhaps, we need this truth in our busy season. Right, that this kind of joy is available to us, that we, we too have this deep and personal friend called God. And that friend who is our God, who is the God of the universe, delights in giving his full attention to each and every one of us. He delights when our focus is on him, because when we see him, for big and who he is, everything else does get small. And so what if, I, what if I gave you a challenge similar to mine, only instead I don't give you a time limit, right? Because here's what I noticed. When I, when I was challenged to pray for five minutes, you know what I watched? The clock. What, what if I did this? What if, what if we changed that, that, that challenge? And let's not focus on how long we pray, but what if, we, like Mary, spent time focusing on who God is. Focusing on what he has done. Maybe even declaring like Mary did, declaring out loud what he is like. What would it look like, kids and families? I know that one of the questions that you ask is, God, you are, with a question mark. What would it look like if we all did that this week? What would it look like if we all spent some time saying, God, you are, and then filled in the blank? Like, God, you are holy. God, you are right. God, you are love. God, you are mercy. God, you are good. What if we spent time doing that and then... We put the little twist on it that Mary does, which I think is what gives us humility. And we say, God, you are holy. God, you are good for me. For me. Not just for the world, which is awesome, right? That's his power. But his friendship with us is that he's that for us, each and every one of us. And so what if this week we said, God, you are for me, what would happen if we spent a bit of time, uninterrupted prayer, focusing on God, making him bigger? Now listen, you don't have to be still, right? Go for a walk, go for a run, go for a hike. Parents, go sit in the car by yourself, right? Go pull into the Target parking lot and sit there for just a minute, right? Because that's about the only time alone you're going to get. And use that time and say, God, you are. And you are for me. Y'all, here's what would happen. If we would see God for how big he really is, we would be a humble people. And when we're a humble people, let me tell you what the world around us sees. They see a group of people with this uncontainable, indescribable joy that doesn't make sense. Now, can you imagine if 20 churches lived that way in this city? Y'all, I'm telling you, it would change a city. And let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for, for your provision and who you are. And thank you, God, that, that you are holy. 
And you are holy for me because, because, because God, you, you, you need to be holy to reach into my messiness and pull me out of my sin. You're not in here with me, but yet you reach in to, to show me a better way to live. And, and, and God, thank you that you are loving for me. Right? That, that your smile to me fills my soul like no other smile can. And God, thank you that you are powerful because in your power, you have given me confidence, you have given me boldness, you have, you have given me um, uh, peace in knowing that you're going to work everything out. And so, Father, when I want to fear, your power is there to move me to faith. And so, Father, for all of those things, I am thankful. I am thankful for this church. In Christ's name I pray, amen.